Welcome to the 36th episode of the Loose Threads podcast, a show about the intersection of consumer, retail, and commerce. Joining me today is Alexa Buckley, a co-founder of Margo, a brand making modern shoes for modern women. Margo is home to a really interesting made-to-measure business, as Alexa and her team found that many women were wearing the wrong size shoe. But with made-to-measure, Margo is helping women find their right size and ensuring they can stick with it across all of their styles. The beauty of a made-to-measure business is that we're in constant conversation with our customers, and that means that we're getting real-time feedback all of the time. Alexa and I had a great talk about the brand's founding story, how it balances a domestic and international supply chain, and how moving into pop-ups has created a whole new channel for the brand to reach customers. Here's my talk with Alexa Buckley. Why don't we start by talking a bit about your background, and then we can work our way up to Margot coming into existence. So I grew up just outside of Philadelphia, then went to Harvard, where I met my partner and co-founder, Sarah. And it was actually during our senior year at Harvard that we jumped up this idea and ended up diving headfirst into it and not taking the corporate jobs we had planned to take. Then we moved here to New York, where we started the business. What was kind of like the background behind, like, where did this come from? is the easiest way to ask that, I guess. Sarah and I both spent time interning in the corporate worlds. I was supposed to go into venture capital and Sarah was supposed to go into consulting. And having spent two summers in New York City, we're all too familiar with the not so glamorous shoe shuffle that a lot of women have to do from kind of throwing in your flip-flops to running to the subway then putting on your heels and then changing back out at the end of the day. And during our senior spring, as we were kind of spitballing and very much just still dreaming, it was not ever the plan, kind of started thinking about this idea that there really could be a shoe and really should be a shoe that could take you everywhere you wanted to go from the very beginning of your day to the end. We kind of fundamentally believed then and then probably even more strongly now that the modern woman is much too busy to make 10 outfit changes and have three extra pairs of shoes in her bag and that a shoe that could feel good and look great and take you from the subway to the gym to work to dinner to drinks and out was kind of like the perfect solution. So we started taking secret trips to New York, actually, and prototyping, all the while very much still planning to take our jobs. And when we started kind of working on the engineering behind the very perfect ballet flat, which we thought was an important product to start with because it's universal and it really transcends age. So I wear it, my mom wears it, my grandmother wears it. We realized that there was a really interesting opportunity to kind of focus on fit within footwear because not many people do. And it really presented an interesting opportunity to disrupt what is a very noisy and very large market. And when we landed on this, we you know, had fallen so in love with the idea that by the time kind of graduation rolled around, we decided that we loved it too much to walk away from it. So about a week after we graduated in 2014, we called our respective employers and let them know that we had kind of fallen into this idea that was now our passion. So we moved to New York together and dove headfirst into kind of building out the idea and a team to kind of bring it all together and then ended up launching exactly a year later in May of 2015. And I'd be curious to talk more a bit about the shoe shuffle idea. Yeah. Like guys don't experience that. (laughs) Why does that happen? And why do you think it'd been kind of unsolved, so to speak? There's a really interesting tension in footwear for women particularly, where it's sort of comfort at the expense of design or design at the expense of comfort. And we believe that they're not mutually exclusive and that we can design really comfortable, beautiful shoes that aren't orthopedic and that 
can kind of look as sophisticated as the, you know, hill that they've been lusting after or, or, or the ballet flat that they already have. So we design every shoe that we make kind of with comfort at the forefront. Comfort and fit are different, but also mutually important. And that informs the design process, but doesn't dictate it. Because at the end of the day, you know, all women want to wear a shoe that makes them feel beautiful and feel dressed. And that's why the shoe shuffle exists, because they have to wear something that's comfortable for the crazy commute and then something that's beautiful as they step through the door. And our idea was to kind of combine the two and create something that was kind of practical and pragmatic, but also elegant and sophisticated and something that, you know, a millennial might aspire to, but also her mother and, you know, we've realized even her grandmother. (laughs) And so you came to New York to do this prototyping kind of on secret trips, as you said, what was that like? Had you ever done this stuff before? Like, no. how did that go? We had absolutely no background in this. <laughs> we were both history majors. We had no business getting into it, but we saw this problem and we wanted to solve it. You know, the beauty of being so fresh to the industry and to the real world in general is that we were able to at least admit what we didn't know. And that kind of resulted in assembling a team of experts in whatever it is we were trying to figure out. So that started with product, obviously eventually translated to everything from web design to packaging to branding to finance and operations. But the very beginning was a lot of sort of relentless searching on LinkedIn and Google and getting in front of anyone who would speak to us. And we were, you know, so lucky to have a very serendipitous meeting with a duo that still runs our product development today. You know, they spent 25 years in the footwear industry and they opened their world to us, which gave us access to factories and experts that was kind of our break. It's a very opaque world. So the two of us at 22 walking into a, you know, a family-owned factory in Spain would have gone a little differently had we not had them. And so how did the business kind of come together? I guess it sounds like you had an idea that started with the product piece, but how did that turn from, again, solving that problem into, okay, this is what the company is, this is what it feels like, this is what the product is. Like, how did mm-hmm. that all come about? Yeah, we started with the product, and also we really did start with the brand. It was at a time when you know, several direct-to-consumer businesses were taking off, and we really felt like there was an opportunity to create something that was really timeless and classic and kind of elevated in its experience at this direct-to-consumer price point that spoke to the modern woman in the way that we wanted to be spoken to, that really celebrated her, and also kind of accommodated her in kind of this very new, very fluid, everyday life. And so when we got to New York and kind of started to dive headfirst, we did two things. We sort of built out the Margot brand and the, the world in which this woman lives in. And also, you know, obviously dove headfirst into product. And this meant kind of first and foremost, assembling a team across the board of people who could really lend their expertise in every bucket of the business. And we also started fundraising and raised a seed round before we launched and took a year to build out the world and kind of build out the supply chain for a process that, you know, up until now hasn't really been done. So the idea of, you know, we have standard size shoes, but when we launched, we also had and still have a made to measure option. So customers can measure their feet and we make the shoes to their measurements. And so we had to kind of create a supply chain from scratch and convince our incredible factory partners that we were going to make this work and walking into a footwear factory, especially where things haven't changed in decades, kind of re-engineering the supply chain took significant time and kind of convincing. So what we ended up doing is working with an incredible factory in Spain in this little town on the southeastern coast where many, many, many footwear brands produce. And they 
do everything kind of from sourcing our materials from Italy to creating the standard sizes fully. They also make the components for our custom shoes. The components are then sent to New York in our factory right outside the city where we reactively make the shoes every week to order. It's a unique supply chain, but it was kind of the critical point in making this work. And so how did that made-to-measure piece kind of come about as we actually need to do this and the idea of just having sizes as they used to be is not the right way to do it or the best way? So as we dug into this idea of the perfect ballet flat, we realized that there was a really interesting opportunity in kind of attacking the issue of fit and engineering the brand through this lens of fit because it's less of a niche problem in the footwear industry than you might think. A kind of staggering statistic is that 88% of women wear the wrong size shoe. And we realized that this made-to-measure process was not only an interesting kind of reinvention of footwear shopping, but a real kind of means to an end for us in creating the perfect love-like fit for that wear-everywhere shoe. So what we end up doing is having two options at launch, standard sizes and made-to-measure. The beauty of it is that once you have your measurements on file, they're saved forever and you can come back and reorder, which results in wonderfully loyal customers. And then kind of a year in, we had all of this data on our customers and realized that we could accommodate maybe 75% of them by having off-the-shelf, narrow, medium, and wide widths, which is sort of more than any of our competitors offer at the moment. And we thought there was a really interesting middle ground there. So we introduced the width options, which now come with every product we launch. We still have the made-to-measure business, which is a really important part of our business that can kind of go above and beyond for those customers with special needs or requests. So it's been a really interesting kind of journey, but I think the biggest surprise for us at launch was realizing that the issue of fit and footwear is huge and we have a real opportunity to kind of take it on. And, you know, another really interesting statistic is that 25% of women in the U.S. wear a size 10 or larger and only 2% of department stores actually carry a size 10 or larger. So just even in our science range, we go from a 33 to a 45, really presents an interesting opportunity. Timing-wise, when was this actually? So you finished school in... So we finished school in 2014. Okay. Moved to New York and started kind of getting settled by July. And we moved pretty quickly. So we launched by May of 2015. Because we wanted to get the product out there and get feedback and kind of understand what resonated and what worked. And we went from there. And we launched with a single product, which is our classic ballet flat. We kind of wanted to put a stake in the ground that this was our classic wear-everywhere shoe and that this was the holding piece of the Margot collection. And it came in a color wheel of 15 colors. So there was optionality within color and customers started building their own color wheels. And then over time, we slowly um, in the past two years have launched new products that kind of complement and start to build out this modern woman's footwear wardrobe. So we have launched everything from more a classic ballet flat to a pointed toe, more recently a block heel and a summer espadrille. So very slowly and methodically are launching new products, but with the intention of kind of building out this modern woman's footwear wardrobe so that one day she can say, Margot makes my shoes. So given this was all kind of a new experience, what was the first year like in terms of just lessons or learning curves? Or So we um, launched on May 15th in 2015. We launched on Vogue.com, which was a really exciting moment. And we launched online only. So we were exclusively online for the first six months. And it was an incredible few months. I will never forget launch morning. We had been up very late the night before finalizing all the last details. And we launched to a really wonderful response. The summer was kind of about fine-tuning the supply chain and the product and learning about the product. 
And then asphalt kind of rolled around. We dove headfirst in testing everything under the sun from a marketing perspective. And what we kind of came out with at the end of that first half year was that the offline component to our business was special and kind of critical because this kind of brand can be a true experience in person. So the idea of having someone measure your feet or having this Cinderella moment where you try on all different kinds of things and find out what works, it's really fun for customers. So Sarah and I traveled all over the country hosting pop-up events for weekends to introduce the brand and also figure out where it really resonated. The best surprise was that you know, we launched with the intention of marketing towards a millennial, and she's certainly a really important customer for us. But her mother hmm. is an even more important customer, potentially. She really feels the pain point if she's not fitting. She's walked 30 years in bad shoes. She's had children. She's, you know, all of the things. And she's really willing to sign on if this works for her and, and purchase in large multiples. So once we learned this, we kind of created a two-pronged marketing approach. So the online and the offline. Digital marketing has been hugely important for us, but the offline equally as important. So after our road show of pop-ups, we went back to the places where it was a big success and opened stores, short-term pop-ups. So we've been doing one at a time, and then we'll continue to layer them on as we grow. I'm curious when this all started, did you think of doing anything besides a direct-to-consumer brand, or was this the only way to do this? For us, direct-to-consumer was kind of the only way to do it for two reasons. One... For the made-to-measure portion of the business, we really had to own that from start to finish. It was also the way, you know, obviously for all direct consumer brands to hit the price point we wanted to. So our shoes would retail for six to $800 in stores and, you know, they're 185 and beyond now. And finally, it was kind of the only way to do it to offer the optionality that we really want to offer and fit. So no department store is going to take a narrow, medium, and a wide in sizes 33 to 45 and our ability to be very edited and very thoughtful about our product lineup and then have all the optionality come and fit is where we really kind of see our value coming in. And so we've definitely thought about wholesale partnerships and are actively exploring them right now. But, you know, our first foot forward will always be direct. And so I'm curious to talk more about the price point piece a bit in mm-hmm. terms of how did you know where you wanted to land? And then obviously it sounded like, you know, the direct-to-consumer piece was crucial to getting there. But where did you kind of see it landing given that existing landscape of... Definitely. Pretty widespread in shoe prices. Well, we definitely created a kind of a competitive landscape map of brands that we thought we could kind of compete with and be on par with. It's a funny thing to do as a direct-to-consumer business because you obviously are creating products that are actually would sell for you know three times more than they do right now. And we felt strongly about having our core product be under $200. So today they start at $125 and we feel for the quality, it's a pretty exceptional value. Yeah, and then just in terms of like kind of like the brand positioning, how do you kind of talk about that and how did it kind of come to fruition as this is where we want to sit, which obviously ties into the pricing piece as well? I think, at, you know, the forefront, it's a modern brand for the modern woman. The modern woman can be anyone from a 22-year-old college graduate to a 65-year-old artist to an 82-year-old woman in New York. And we've learned that time and time again. Yesterday in the studio, we had three generations of customers. So we had a daughter, her mother, and her grandmother. And the beauty of creating something that is kind of timeless and whose beauty lies in the very simple details of the quality and the design means that it really transcends age and also geography. So New York is a very important, probably the most important market for us, but we have customers all over the country from the Midwest to the West Coast to the South. And I think there's the timeless sophistication of 
the brand with this modern twist of how we sell, where we sell, and what we sell is kind of how we define ourselves. I want to circle back to the fit piece a bit because I think we probably talked about this a bit before, which is there's always been these aspirations in fashion apparel, footwear, whatever it is that, you know, we'll move to a world of kind of total customization Mm -hmm. and personalization. And mostly that has not happened in its kind of purest form, but there are a lot of maybe more pragmatic applications of that. And so I'm curious kind of why you think footwear stayed standardized for so long. And then what was some of the heavy lifting that you had to do to kind of push it to a place where we actually can start to move towards that and kind of break out of just these pre-considered boxes, so to speak? I think the footwear has stayed standard for so long because it's an incredibly complex process. So there are something like more than 60 decisions are made in the making of a shoe. So 60 kind of actions within the factory line. It's still completely hand-done. There's machinery that's obviously helped the process. But interestingly enough, a century ago, people actually did buy shoes in a much more custom format. So there were many more options available from narrow, medium, and wide to kind of customized fit. And we've since moved away from that as the retail landscape has changed. And our ability to kind of come back to center was special because there are certainly customers who do remember when they were able to get a 37 narrow off the shelf pretty easily. Because it is so complex, we have kind of focused on fit as the custom element, not design. We felt really strongly about kind of controlling the design so that we could build a brand and have these sort of iconic styles that were signature to Margot and that the custom element would come in with a fit because that's where we could really add value to the customer and also create really loyal customers. So it sounds like a lot of what made that possible was kind of having a very standardized focus on the product side, right? That you didn't allow design to also be personalized. We know that you wanted to start with kind of the single shoe, but how did you kind of decide the cadence and kind of focus you would bring to the product side and how that would then interplay with the supply chain side? So we launched with the classic ballet flat. We were focused on kind of perfecting this single shoe and having this single silhouette be the iconic Margo shoe. And we quickly realized that the beauty of such loyal customers also meant that they wanted the quote unquote Margo comfort in their other shoes and that we were going to have to kind of more quickly than we probably anticipated build out this footwear wardrobe. So we started with the pointed toe flat because a comfortable pointed toe shoe is like the ultimate challenge. We labored for about nine months on between one and two millimeters of the shoe on the foot and finally came up with something that we really loved So we launched that in addition to a kind of more casual off-duty ballet flat, which was a a wonderful product for the millennial and an add-on for someone who was buying the classic in multiples. And then after several really interesting conversations, many conversations with customers and a focus group, realized that we were really ready to take on the heel through the lens of the Margot ballet flat. So it is our classic with the two and a half inch block heel. It was designed with comfort in mind. So we spent another year working on this shoe And it is, I will have to say, almost even more comfortable than the flat. I walked four miles yesterday, so I can attest. But everything that we've done has really been designed with the customer in mind. So listening to her feedback and the beauty of a made-to-measure business is that we're in constant conversation with our customers. So every customer who orders gets a personalized email from our fit specialist asking how their shoes feel and, you know, how they like them. And that means that we're getting real-time feedback all of the time. And the thing that was most asked for was the heel. So we finally said, okay, we're ready to do it. 
it's been an incredible three months since we've launched it. So we're now working on new silhouettes that will kind of slowly but surely add to this really classic lineup. And so it sounds like you don't approach the design from a season perspective. Is it more seasonless? Like how do you approach the cadence at which you refresh mm-hmm. or kind of introduce new, both I guess styles, but also colors? So our classic, we launched in a seasonless color wheel. So it's 15 colors of suede that are available all year round. Then we've launched other products with kind of a core color collection. So the Demi Ballerina, for example, has a few core colors that are always in stock. And then seasonally, we'll play with special colors or special textures. We do the same for the pointed toe shoe and the heel as well. And now that we are two years in, we're starting to introduce new silhouettes at a slightly quicker pace. So almost one a season. The ability to kind of play with color and texture on silhouettes that we've perfected will be kind of what we focus on and a really you know exciting part of business because you're able to kind of bring in new customers and retain existing customers by you know experimenting and playing with the things that really work. So you started obviously by coming to New York to kind of start this journey. The factory is in Spain, the made to measure is here in New York. I'm curious to talk a bit more about like the domestic versus international piece and kind of it sounds like you found a way to make those kind of work very congruently together, but how did that all kind of come about? And obviously there are larger implications for where a lot of manufacturing is happening, but what, what are the thoughts on that, I guess? When we first started working on the business, we were really interested in producing everything in the United States. And then we quickly learned that there is kind of a true art to footwear, especially, and that there's sort of hands and the sculpting really existed in you know different parts of the world, particularly in this town in Spain. Because the making of a last is kind of like a sculpture. You actually start with wood and you carve it by hand. And every kind of millimeter that you shave here and there really affects the fit of the shoe. So we decided we wanted to go where the experts were. We went to Spain. And the beauty of working in today's you know crazy digital world is that so much can happen remotely. So we only go about two times a year. And we're able to accomplish a lot through email and FaceTime and phone calls. We do go every time we start working on a new silhouette because that last making process is so important to us. But we've been incredibly lucky in our partners there who are able to kind of handle everything on the kind of supply chain side for us. And then how did it kind of come about that for the main to measure? You know, the inception would be there, but then the assembly would be kind of here. So when we went to Spain for the very first time, Sarah and I were like, wide-eyed looking around at how incredible the facilities are and also how concentrated the industry is there. So you can walk down the street and you're going to see the tannery and the sole maker and the last maker and the factory all right there. So things happen quickly and it's a very efficient place to produce. And when we saw the kind of beauty of the craftsmanship there, we realized that this is exactly where we wanted to produce. And if we were going to make our standard size shoes there, we couldn't have the quality be any different for our custom shoes. And so in order to kind of keep the quality consistent, we knew that we needed to kind of start them down the same exact factory line. And so what we've been able to do is just that and actually kind of just stop our custom components before they get to assembly so that we can use the bits and pieces, almost like playing Legos Mm -hmm. in our factory here, our custom factory here in New York. So generally, if you were innovating on the supply chain side, there would be some sort of impetus to go, okay, we need to own some part of this or, you know, be part of the factory or vertically integrated, all that stuff. It sounds like you've been able to find amazing partners to kind of do that for you and allow you to kind of focus on what you all do best. Did you ever have thoughts of like, how deep back do we need to go? Or was it always that, you know, we can do the brand and the design and all that, and we can trust other people to 
you know, do their job, so to speak. We've thought long and hard about having our own custom factory, of course, but this kind of third-party partner has worked really well for us up until now. That said, Sarah and I have always been very close to the process. I mean, we had to build a factory line from scratch here in New York to create these custom shoes. So at the beginning, Sarah and I were actually a part of that factory line. <laughs> we had, we each had our own role, and we saw every package that went out the door when we first launched. So I did the dusting of the soles, and Sarah actually packed the boxes. <laughs> we have since worked ourselves out of those factory line roles, but I think also being a part so intimately of the process allowed us to really understand what it takes and the skills needed and the team needed to kind of make it happen every week. So our partners are... You know, they are our partners, but they certainly feel like they're part of our family. Both factories are family owned, and we've been so lucky to have them. So we talked about the retail piece before. I'm curious to kind of, I guess, dive deeper into kind of that whole journey in terms of when was the first kind of inkling of, okay, there's some offline manifestation that needs to happen. And then to almost, I guess, talk through some of the examples of that. And I guess you have the road trip and then the pop-ups and then kind of up to where it is today. So we had our very first event in October after we launched, and we invited 100 women to our first pop-up with little expectations on how this might go, and we were blown away. We had set up many fitting stations where you could go and have your feet measured, and we had you know 10 women deep lines of women waiting to get fitted and realized in this three-hour craze, oh my goodness, we need to do more of this. Like this works. And there was conversation around the color wheel. There was excitement on, you know, are you going to get this or that? Or should I get both? Um, there was an, a social element to it. And there was something that felt very luxurious about kind of stepping into this little fitting station and getting measured. And after this event, minutes after, and said, okay, where are we going to go next? And that's how we planned our roadshow, which took us all over the United States. We went everywhere from LA and San Francisco to four cities in Texas in five days to Chicago to Florida, Charlotte, North Carolina, the Hamptons, Nantucket, all over the place. And we realized that the customers that we were acquiring offline were spending more and repeating faster, even than our most of our online customers, and that this was an interesting channel for us. So we've since spent significant time kind of building out both. And the beauty of having a wide range of age and customers is that we're able to kind of access them in different ways. So we're learning how to find and speak to these customers differently and then kind of channeling our focus into this pop-up strategy and then digital marketing to kind of complement each other. And then talk about the showroom that we're recording in today in terms of how did this come to fruition and then are there more of them or all of that piece? We worked in a co-working office leading up to launch and just after, and we were in the New York Times one Thursday. I don't really know how someone found us, but our customers did. All of a sudden, we had customers coming on a daily basis to the co-working space asking to get measured. And it was not the most branded setting to have a common room where we were whipping out the tape measure and measuring these customers' feet, and we realized that this was the breaking point and we needed a space of our own. So we went on the exhausting hunt of finding a space in New York, and we're so lucky in finding this space here that we're in today. Our office is in the back, the studio is in the front, and we have customers coming in you know, several times a day, every day, to try on shoes, to look at the new shoes that we have, the colors we have in the collection, and to get fitted for a made-to-measure pair. And this has been an incredible kind of testing ground for the offline experience in the way that we interact with clients and can kind of accommodate them. And every customer has their own 
time in the studio. So we block off enough time for it to be a one-on-one. Then we've realized the kind of power of this intimacy, kind of want to really focus on creating this intimacy at scale as we continue to open new pop-ups and expand the collection. And then on the size front, is your size in the ballerina the same as the heel or how does that work between products? Yes, for the most part. Sometimes because of special materials, we'll recommend, you know, half size down or within. But yes, the ability to kind of find your size and find your fit and know that is a great aspect of our offline experience because people can come in, get fitted or find their fit and know that, okay, great, I'm a 38 wide and then repeat their second, fourth, fifth time online. What's the most number of shoes any customer? We have some amazing customers. (laughs) There are several customers who own the whole color wheel and beyond. Which is how? Which is 15. Wow, that's crazy. (laughs) We have some great customers. That's great. And so I'm curious to talk a bit about kind of like the brand landscape right now. We alluded to a bit of fundraising stuff before. There are a lot of brands out there. How do you kind of look at, and this kind of leads into like the scale question as well, but how do you look at like the longer term kind of landscape piece and where does this all go? Both, I guess, for the brand, but also the landscape more generally. The beauty of doing what we're doing with our focus on fit and kind of this wide range of optionality and fit and then the custom piece means that nobody's doing exactly what we're doing in the market at all. There are certainly some people who do offer widths and there are certainly really old heritage brands that do the fully custom experience. But at our price point especially, we're unique in that way. And we see kind of a huge opportunity to build a really lasting brand with fit at the forefront. Design will always be as important, kind of building out something that really speaks to this modern woman. But we see no reason that, you know, in five or 10 years, a woman can say, Margot makes my shoes and mean that for all of her classic footwear staples. And then in terms of, I guess, like looking in the next like three to five years, what is kind of the pace and or scale that you want to grow at or kind of be as you look into the next kind of few years? Like is the plan to just like blow everything out of the water and be literally everywhere? Or is there a more kind of concerted growth process of growing, but not, let's say, at at a Casper like speed or something? I think, you know, if possible to hit a really nice middle ground is the goal. (laughs) Like a half Um, Casper. (laughs) We're, we're growing very quickly right now and we're trying to keep everything together. The goal for the next year is certainly to build out the team. We're a small team at HQ right now. How many? Eight of us in the office today. A lot of our team members are part-time or contracted and therefore outside the office. But I think, you know, the goal at the end of the day is to create a really lasting brand that is authentic at its core and thoughtful and methodical with every step that it takes. Of course, we're hoping to keep this growth up because it's been exciting and a roller coaster, but we always want to make sure that we're making those right decisions that kind of set ourselves up for a, a much longer lasting success. What's been the cheapest and most expensive lesson you've learned in the last three That's years? A great question. The cheapest lesson we've learned is the power of this offline component. So our very first pop-up was nothing more than some cocktails and a few light bites. And we did a month's worth of revenue in three hours. And it was bananas. And Sarah and I did not get up from the measuring stations the entire night to greet a single guest because we were completely understaffed and totally overwhelmed. It was a good problem to have and a really great learning moment. Like, oh my goodness, I can't believe we hadn't done this sooner. And from there, that informed a lot of what we spent the next eight months of our energy on. Obviously, we were focused, most importantly, as always on the product. But the kind of marketing component and what was going to work was a really close second. Because we had this wide range of customers kind of in age and geography, it meant we had to figure out, you know, 
a million and one different ways to get to that customer. We've since learned that there's really no substitute for press, but also that the combination of offline online would be really important for us. And I think the most expensive lesson, the thing that we have invested the most time in that we constantly kind of have to relearn and remind ourselves on is how long it takes from beginning to end to perfect a new silhouette. So our production cycle doesn't take long at all. Actually, we're very lucky when we need to reorder and replenish. But to get a silhouette just right, it always takes longer than we think it's going to take. It's because we labor over millimeters. So we were planning to launch our pointed toe probably much sooner than we ended up doing. And it's because every time you move a millimeter here, you have to move a millimeter there. And we're so particular that it took double the time that we thought it would take. And that has certainly happened with each product since. And we've realized that when fit is the forefront and we're perfectionists, that we have to kind of give ourselves double, maybe triple the amount of time for each kind of new creation. Final kind of few questions. What's the weirdest thing you've learned about shoes and or feet in the last three years? We have seen more feet than I thought. (laughs) I've learned more about feet than most people have in a lifetime. I think the most interesting thing that I've learned that is now, you know, so common to me, but, you know, we keep teaching our customers is that people with wide feet often say that they slip out the back of their shoes. And that's actually because they're sizing up a half size to accommodate the width at the front of their foot. Mm -hmm. So if we would actually give them the appropriate length, and give them a little more width at the front, they would stay in their shoes. And kind of in the reverse, people with very narrow feet often feel like their feet are kind of squished. And that's actually because they're sizing down significantly Mm -hmm. to accommodate the width for their feet. So we're able to give them a longer size and a more narrow shoe, and it feels much more comfortable. There's little like fit hacks that I've become so used to that continue to surprise customers when we kind of show them. And then as you look out in the next kind of like one to three years, what's on the horizon? And then what are you most excited about? On the horizon um, is the launch of a few new, very exciting silhouettes, a few collaborations that I'm really excited about, and then some new pop-up locations that will kind of layer on top of other existing that will be kind of very different from the first few that we've done, and I think open the doors to a whole new host of customers in a really exciting way. And then where's the name from? We named the brand Margot because... We wanted it to be really strong, but also feminine and kind of the perfect embodiment of this modern woman we're designing for. We didn't want it to be named after Sarah and myself because we wanted it to be something that anybody could kind of embody and be a part of. And when we saw it, we kind of knew immediately. It was actually the first decision we made Hmm. and it never changed. And we love the strength of the M and the X, which we use as our monogram and kind of love its sensibility. Yeah. I feel like name decisions either take like a minute or a year. Yeah, exactly. There's no middle when you're naming anything. <laughs> no. Awesome. Thanks so much for talking. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Loose Threads podcast. Join the newsletter at loosethreads.com and feel free to leave a review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. This episode is edited by George Drake Jr. And my thanks to him for his time on it. I really enjoyed talking with Alexa about Margot's approach, which takes a digital DNA of the brand and applies it both online and offline. The move towards specific sizing and customization is also interesting, as this has always been a dream for the industry that is increasingly accessible. We have a great roster of upcoming guests, including Melissa Dern of Jennifer Beck Communications, Andreas Modak of Snow, and Jeff Johnson of The Arrivals. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.